Thank you, gentlemen. It's good to see the seminarians and their scruff beards. <laughs> Wonderful. I tell you, that's stirring to me to see those men who are on the brink themselves of uh, launching into ministry. Um, it was kind of an eye-opening thing to me this summer, just in realizing how close these seminary guys are uh, to dealing with undergrads. These guys are so close. They're very close. They're praying, seeking the Lord's face on what's next. And uh, it's really exciting. In fact, that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about here this morning uh, regarding what's next. If you could please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. And uh, I won't ask for the pers first person to get there to stand, but it can be a little bit difficult to find sometime. Abus, Obadiah, Jonah. I'm going to be preaching here this morning a uh, new message to me, but a burden that's been on my heart for a couple of years. And um, I was listening to a preacher uh, on a podcast, and I remember he brought out just a couple of things that I'm probably going to be trying to bring out here this morning that I thought, you know, this is... This is the heart of the book of Jonah. This is really what God is after when it comes to the prophet Jonah. You know, a lot of times when we think of Jonah, typically many of us think of Jonah and the... It's not a whale. It's a great fish or a sea monster, whatever it is. But yeah, that's what we think of. And I think many times our perception of the story of Jonah is shaped by children's books. You know what I'm saying? The little cartoon dude, you know, flying like this towards the shore, getting spit out of the whale's mouth and all of that stuff. And, um, and I think many times in our minds, the, um, the point, the moral of the story of the book of Jonah is do what God called, told you to do right away. Uh, wouldn't you say many times that we what we think of and we think you know if we do what God told us to do right away then we won't have to get swallowed by a whale right but you know I don't know about you but when you think about the book of Jonah and you think about the fact that God expects us to do right when he speaks to us chapter 4 doesn't make a whole lot of sense you ever notice that you ever kind of wish Jonah just kind of stopped at the end of chapter 3? <laughs> and that we didn't have to go on to chapter 4 to see how Jonah was still upset even after God had done a miracle through his life and it's confusing and we're like, what's going on? Jonah finally got around to doing what's right. Most of the children's books don't talk about chapter 4. They just talk about chapters 1 through 3. He didn't do right. Then he did do right. Then God blessed. The end of the story, uh, go obey your moms and dads. That's typically what the children's book angle is on the book of Jonah. But you know, as you begin to study the book, as you begin to study, and really I'm going to be focusing in on the very beginning of the book because in the very beginning of the book, we see the problem revealed that never got remedied in the whole book of Jonah. Really, the book of Jonah is a very sad book. The book of Jonah is not a victory, though there is a victory for some because God is merciful, because God loves the people that he sent his son to, or he, the people he would send his son to die for. God loves the world, that is true, and there is some victory in this book, but not for Jonah. And I want to talk to you here this morning. I want to spend some time just meditating on uh, some of these verses and trying to get to the root of the problem with the prophet Jonah. I think a lot of us here, we don't identify with Jonah because here you are in Bible college. 
Here you are today, you're trying to follow God's will for your life. You've seen God use you to some measure. And I think many times we think I've already passed this point. God called, right? God called me to the ministry, and so I'm following him. God called me to Baptist College of Ministry, so I'm following him. And I think many times we can think that the book of Jonah really doesn't apply as much to you or I here at this point in our lives. We've already surrendered to God's will. We've already started walking towards Nineveh, so to speak. And we're there, and we're good. And the book of Jonah is something we should study for the sake of studying our Bible, but ultimately, that's not where I am. As I began to study this, I realized this is where I am. This is probably where you are, too, if you really get down to it. And I'd like to preach to you here this morning a message that I've simply entitled, Running From Your Life. So can we open with a word of prayer? Uh, Lord Jesus, I do ask that you would bless this short time that we have together. I pray that you'd fill me with the Holy Ghost. God, I still don't have what it takes, whether this is a new message or a message I've preached many times before. I do not have what it takes, but I thank you that you do. And I ask, Father, that you'd fill me full to overflowing with your spirit. I'm weak. I don't deserve it. But I ask that you would give me your unction and your anointing for this time. I want to thank you that you will. And I ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Speak to my heart this morning. And I pray, God, that you'd lift the lid off of our hearts and show us what's really in there. Lord, I pray that you'd bless now. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin reading in the beginning of the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1 here. The Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Now before I go any further along, this is how prophetic books start. The word of the Lord came unto X. The word of the Lord came unto Amos. The word of the Lord came unto Isaiah. The word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah. There's not a whole lot different about the beginning of this book except what normally follows when the word of the Lord came to a prophet, the prophet spoke what God said. And typically, in one of the prophetic books, when you see the word of the Lord came unto the prophet, what follows are the words of the Lord. And yet here in the book of Jonah, that's not what happened. What follows is a story. The life, or at least this portion of the life of this man, Jonah. Now there's something you need to understand about Jonah in order to get a full-orbed understanding of what's happening here. This was not the first time the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. In fact, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14, you don't have to turn there for sake of time, but in the book of 2 Kings and uh, chapter 14, here the scripture says, verses 23 through 25, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years. And he did that which, that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coasts of Israel. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Let me ask you a question about Jeroboam II. Was he a good king or was he a bad king? He's a bad king. He did not depart 
from the false worship that Jeroboam the first had set up. He did not depart from that. In fact, he probably made it even worse. And yet there is a moment of a light here in his life. In verse 25 it says, He restored the coast of Israel from entering Havamath unto the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet which was of Gath Hefer here what we find is uh, the first time in the recording of our Bible here that we see Jonah come up was right here in the midst of a bad reign of a bad king Israel because the word of the Lord came through Jonah to Jeroboam the second Israel regained more territory than it had had since the days of Solomon and David here this was one of the most extensive retaking of the land here and it was because God spoke through Jonah so Jonah was a man that God had used. Now, uh, granted, we look at the, uh, the, the northern kingdom, we look at Jeroboam, we think he was a bad man. We see Jeremo, Jero, uh, Jonah was prophesying for him. There could be the question of whether it was a good thing or not. But I want to remind you, God's the one who spoke through Jonah. So whatever it was, God spoke it, so therefore there must have been something good about it. And I'll guarantee you this, Jeroboam was for Jonah. I mean, you think about it. Here's your prophet, right? This prophet comes up and he speaks, even though you're a bad king, even though you're not doing right, and the prophet says, hey, I want you to know what God's going to do. God's going to give you back a bunch of the land that you lost. And it came to pass. Came to pass. Guess what? Jonah, Jonah was a celebrity, very likely, in northern Israel. Jonah was no doubt favored by Jeroboam II. I would imagine because God had used him because he spoke for God and God did it and it benefited the northern kingdom. I would imagine that Jeroboam got all kinds of nice things from Jeroboam. I, I don't know. Maybe this is the case. Maybe Jeroboam got a house. Maybe Jeroboam got some servants. Maybe Jeroboam got a portion. I'm sorry, Jonah. Maybe Jonah got a house. Maybe Jonah got a portion of money. Maybe Jonah got put on the front page of the, the Northern Kingdom Times. I don't know. But whatever happened, things were looking pretty good for Jonah. Things were looking pretty good for the prophet Jonah here at this point in time. And you know, in the midst of this, here he is glorying in the fame of God using Jonah to uh, expand the northern kingdom like it hadn't been expanded in, in a long time. Jonah probably thought, you know what, this is pretty good. I can handle this. I like this. Everybody likes me. You know, here I am, listen, I'm doing what I was made to do. And, uh, you know, uh, the king likes me, and sure, maybe not everything's great here in the northern kingdom, you know, with all the golden calves and all that stuff. But, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm living a good life. Things are going my way. I've got what I want. Things are good. I, I think I could stay here for the rest of my life. I think that's the context of Jonah 1, verse 1. You see, Jonah, Jonah had it all figured out. Here he was. He had graduated from Bible college. I don't know if he went to the school of the prophets or what. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Um, but he had it all figured out. 
He was taking the first step of his public ministry and God did something amazing. And you know what? He was all good. Hey, you know what? I'm just going to kind of stay right here. I won't cause any waves here in the northern kingdom. You know, I've kind of made my name. I've got my fame. This is all good. I, I, think, I think I've got it. You know, uh, as far as uh, Jonah was concerned, he had status. Um, he was doubtless honored and trusted by his people and by his king. And Jonah had success at this point in his public ministry. He had a 100% accuracy rating. It's pretty good. You know, one prophecy. God did it. Why don't I quit while the going's good, right? <laughs> pretty good. And, and you know, it was at this point in his life that Jonah 1, verse 1 comes into play. Jonah thought he had it all figured out. But in verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. You know, God has a way of taking us when we think we've arrived. God has a way of taking us when we have gotten into a comfortable place in life where we've got the status that we want, where we've got the success that we want, and God has a way of stepping into your status and success and your vision of the good life and messing it all up. God has a way of doing that. I want you to think about what's happening here. So Jonah, remember, he's like a celebrity in the northern kingdom. Uh, uh, King Jeroboam II loves Jonah. He loves Jonah. And then here God decides to go in and say, hey, Jonah, I want you to go up to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was not on good terms with the northern kingdom. In fact, uh, not too long into the future, the Assyrian Empire is going to wipe the walls with the northern kingdom and wipe them off the map. And I'm sure at this point in time, uh, there is a little bit of a, 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 a um, there, there's tension between the two kingdoms. I'm sure there's probably a little bit of fear on the part of, of Israel about that kingdom. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, wait a second, wouldn't this increase his fame? You know what I'm saying? On, on the part of the northern kingdom? Because, you know, if, um, if Jonah goes up and says... God's going to destroy you all. And if God does it, does it, man, Jonah's reputation would not, would just shoot through the roof. I mean, man, Jonah would be the most popular guy in the Middle East. <laughs> so why did he run? How did this mess up Jonah's plan? Well, <clears throat> at this moment in time, at least in verses 1 through 3, we don't see any uh, account of what Jonah was thinking at this time. But if you turn over to chapter 4, you actually do see what Jonah was thinking. You actually see implied why Jonah ran. I I'm trying to build a case here, um, just in the context of this book right here. Uh, verse 4, this is right after uh, uh, Nineveh repented and turned to God, and God turned 
from what he was planning to do to them. In verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. You would think a prophet would be excited that people get right with God, wouldn't you? You'd think that a man of God would be excited that people got saved. Well, look at what it says in verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, this is why I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. So what we find right here is before Jonah ever fled, when God said, when the word of the Lord appeared unto Jonah and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh, cry against it because their wickedness had come unto me. Here's what Jonah thought. Great. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go up to Nineveh. I'm going to preach against Nineveh. And you know what's going to happen? This is what he's thinking before it ever happened. Because God is so loving and kind and merciful, they're, gonna, they're all going to turn to God and they're going to get saved. It doesn't even compute to most of us. So Jonah knew that they were going to get saved and he ran anyway. Don't a lot of times we think Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh? Isn't that typically kind of the way we phrase the story? Now granted, going to Nineveh was a fearful thing. I heard uh, somebody say it'd be like parachuting in the middle of World War II into Berlin and, you know, jumping up and saying, down with the Third Reich! (laughs) But Jonah didn't run because he was afraid. He ran because he was afraid that God was going to mess up his plan. See, I want to remind you, I've been saying each of these things on purpose. Jonah had major status in the northern kingdom. Who was enemy number one of the northern kingdom? Assyria. So it's fine if he was going to go and if God was going to rain fire and brimstone on Assyria, that would have been great, but Jonah knew that's not what God's going to do. No, what God's going to do is God's going to come down there in Assyria and the Assyrians are going to all turn to God and they're going to get saved. And this is terrible. That's not going to help my reputation back here in the Northern Kingdom. That's going to complicate things for me here in the Northern Kingdom. I might even get called a traitor. I might even... Be, uh, I might even be executed for a treasonous act for having God come down over in the Assyrian kingdom. You know, some people have said Jonah ran because he was afraid. Some people have surmised maybe Jonah ran because of, uh, of uh, some kind of racism or something like that where he just didn't like those people and so he didn't want to go and do that. I don't think that the point was that Jonah was afraid. I don't think the point was that Jonah just did it like the Ninevites. I think the point was Jonah liked himself. And Jonah liked his little plan, his little box of his career that he had thus far crafted for himself. And to follow the word of the Lord 
would basically take his nice little box and shink, <laughs> blow it all up. See, Jonah thought he had it all figured out. He had in his mind the vision of what it was like to be a good prophet, what it was like to be a good citizen of the northern kingdom, what, uh, what the good life was all about. He had that pegged. He was living it right now. And then God showed up and messed it all up. <laughs> See, God's vision for Jonah was different than Jonah's vision for Jonah. Jonah probably imagined that he would stay in that nice little apartment that he was given with the nice little bit of riches that he was given or whatever he might have gotten as his perks and he would have gone on to live a nice old, to a nice old age being known as the prophet who expanded northern Israel's kingdom to the extent that it had not been since Solomon and David. But God wanted him to risk his safety. God wanted him to risk his reputation to go because God had a mission that he wanted to accomplish. You ever find that God messes your plans up? You ever find that? <laughs> oh boy, have I ever found that. You know, I, as I'm thinking about this, honestly, as I was studying and meditating and talking to my wife about this last night, I could think of so many different examples in my life where I thought I had it all figured out in my mind how, how the evangelist life was supposed to look, how the man of God's life was supposed to look, how being a, a member of Falls Baptist Church and on staff at Baptist College of Ministry, how all of that was supposed to look. I can think back to times, so, you know, here's how it's supposed to look when I'm a student at Baptist College of Ministry. Here's how it's supposed to look when I get married. Here's how it's supposed to look when I get on the road and travel and do what I want to do with, with my life. And I can't tell you how many times in the midst of pursuing what I think to be the best, God shows up and messes it all up. You know, uh, my kids, um, David's kind of out of the stage now, but when he was younger, he would uh, have these Thomas the Train tracks, and uh, he would build these very extensive train track systems in his bedroom there in the trailer. And Eva, when she began to crawl around and walk, was no friend to David's extensive train track systems. She would come in there and she would tear in, you know, and she would grab the tracks and we actually had a little nickname for her at that time. We called her Baby Godzilla. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, she just kind of come in and tear it all up. And it was funny, you know, David had spent so much time on crafting these tracks and making them all connect just perfectly. And, you know, he's about ready to put the train on the track and then baby Godzilla comes in and tears it all up. And David looks at that and he would get angry and he would get frustrated and he would push and he would punch. Well, maybe not punch, but, you know, he would do everything he could to preserve what he had made for himself. And you know, I think sometimes when we have our vision for our five-year plan or our seven-year plan, for some of you here at BCM, <laughs> we have our vision for how our last week of the nine-week block is going to end up. 
or our vision for how our Christmas break should be, or our vision for how our night at, ho- uh, night at home without much schoolwork is supposed to go, or we have our vision with how traveling with Mr. Bosler should go, or we have our vision with how the first step out in ministry should go, or we have our vision with how courtship should go, or we have our vision with how that test this morning should go. And when God throws a curveball, I think sometimes, and I don't mean this to be irreverent, we view it like my son viewed baby Godzilla. Quit that, God. Stop it. What are you doing? I got a good thing happening here. This is my night to relax. Why did that have to go wrong with the trailer? You know, hey, listen, I expected to get more names and numbers than anybody. What are you doing to me, God? I expect she'd like me when we started courting. (laughs) This is not how I pictured this. You laugh now. (laughs) You know, God is going, I'm going to tell you right now, you have your picture for how it's all supposed to work out. But what God is trying to do in throwing these curveballs in your life, he's not trying to wreck it. He's not trying to mess it up. He's trying to expand your vision. He's trying to increase your faith. He's trying to make you into something you never thought you could be. He's really trying to do something amazing and something miraculous, and something you never could have dreamed of yourself. That's not how we would have done it. It's not how we pictured it going. I'm sure Sam didn't picture that things were going to go the way they did a couple years ago with the cancer. You know, and I want you to know that's just one example, and there are many other examples. It may not be a physical thing for you. It could be you have to sit out a semester because of finances, and that is totally not how you thought things were supposed to go. You thought in your mind, oh, I'll seek God. I'll pray. And God will miraculously answer and provide, you know, $7,000 that I need for my school bill. And you know what? Sometimes He will. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray expectantly, but I'm saying sometimes God makes things happen differently than you thought they should happen. And God's not wrecking your life. God's making your life. You know, I had so many times in undergraduate where I thought God should supply for my school bill by a certain time. I remember having lots of conversations with Pastor Zemple. I'd be in his office, ah, not every week, but you know, every couple months, something like that, a little checkpoint. And you know, sometimes little things would come. Sometimes there would be an anonymous gift from somebody who's anonymous. That's how they work. Um, And there were so many times where I remember just dying, like thinking, Lord, if you really wanted me to be here, why aren't you providing? Well, God was preparing me to know how to live by faith. God was preparing me to know how to live a life where your income isn't always guaranteed. God was preparing. He was expanding me. And in the moment, I just plain didn't like it. 
wrestling with how much to get into with this. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think sometimes you all, maybe some of you, how many of you here think maybe God's calling you to be an evangelist? Let me see your hands. I know probably my evangelist group, maybe a few others. You know, I think a lot of times you look at evangelism and you think it's really glamorous. You know, uh, you know, because so-and-so big name evangelist pulls up in their giant RV and giant truck. And, you know, my wife and I joke about this. You know, the wife steps out of the trailer and her hair is perfect and she's got on designer clothes. And the preacher, you know, the preacher, he just knows what he's doing and he's got it all together. And he, you know, and it just looks so glamorous. And you get, you know, you know, you got the whole cufflinks and all of those crazy things. Well, in case you noticed, I'm a poor evangelist. I'm, I'm not an evangelist like that. You know, my wife, she says sometimes I'm lucky if I have my hair done at all, let alone perfect when I come out of the trailer. You know, it's, we feel more like the trailer park evangelist <laughs> than the high profile evangelist sometimes, you know? <clears throat> and you know, you have this image and this picture of the glamour of ministry and that it's going to be just so amazing and just so perfect and everybody's going to love you and God's always going to use you and you're going to have more than enough to go around. If that's your picture of evangelism, God's going to mess it up pretty quick when you get out there. Because that's not what it's really like. You know, it's a challenge. You know, there's a constant pressure of meetings you don't always have a guaranteed income. You know, it takes a lot to get a house as an evangelist. And then yet you're stuck in a trailer in the parking lot where everybody walks by the, your front doorstep, you know, in the morning times when they're walking through, and it's kind of like if you open the door at the wrong time, it's kind of like, whoa. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, when it gets cold, you've got to do all kinds of crazy things to keep the trailer warm, and I'm thankful for a good furnace that keeps us warm. But I'll be honest with you, this isn't what I pictured when I signed up. It's not what I pictured. You know, we think we've got it all figured out how it's going to look. Listen, some of you think you know exactly how this courtship thing one day is going to work. You know, you're going to look at her. She's going to look at you the orchestral track, you know, da 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 or whatever you're supposed to play. <clears throat> you know, did it ever occur to you guys that, you know, I, I'm sure there's probably some upperclassmen and probably some seminarians that are praying about some things right now, I would imagine. I got everybody's attention right now. <clears throat> and, and, you know, we guys, we have it in our minds, you know, oh, we've been praying for, you know, like two, three, five, seven years. <clears throat> and, you know, we just kind of imagine that, you know, when our dad calls her dad, it's going to be like, we've been praying that you would call for years. <laughs> and, you know, we just kind of imagine that, you know, when dad talks to the girl, She's going to have to pick herself up off the floor because she's, she's already Twitter-pated, you know, and, uh, and she's just, wow, this is great, and she's going to say yes, you know, right away, and this is going to be awesome and amazing, and, and then you find she's really wrestling with it. Why would she be wrestling with it? I mean, it's me after all. 
she's she was created for me right you know I mean what's there to wrestle about you know what I mean <clears throat> I remember um, I don't know if I should say okay I'm just gonna say it when my wife and I first started courting well if I back up a little bit that was kind of my scenario to be honest with you um, my wife had in her mind a picture of what the guy that she was going to marry was supposed to be like. She had kind of a list of things, of qualifications. I'm sure she never wrote them down or anything like that. But to cut to the chase, I wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of, the, kind of the class clown kind of a guy, kind of the goofy guy that was a different color every Christmas. Um, literally, look back at the pictures. One year, we did a Tom Sawyer Christmas, and I was Jim the Slave. Um, the next year, so I was brown that year. The next year, we did an Italian Christmas, and I was the meatball. So I was red that year. The next year, we did the Grinch who stole Christmas break, and I was green. So, you know, that kind of a thing, as much as you guys might think that might endear you to whoever, maybe there's some unique girl that it would, but at least in my case, I was the goofball. And, um, and she just didn't quite see it at first. And I'll be honest with you, it took her, let's see, May all the way through November. <laughs> Talk about insecurity. Oh, good night. <laughs> I spent however many months that was thinking, what's wrong with me? Why didn't, wouldn't she say yes? And then she said yes. I remember I actually preached. I was an intern that fall semester, and I preached in the Wednesday evening service, um, trading trauma for triumph out of James chapter 1 and uh, as an undergraduate. And um, <clears throat> that night uh, I found out that she had told her parents, I think we can, ta I think we can start this thing. Yeah, it was because of my preaching. <laughs> That's the way to win a girl, absolutely. <clears throat> and, um, but then, you know, the whole letters had to come in and all that stuff and from the parents, and that took a little while. And then I remember I was monitoring the mail like a hawk because I was waiting. I think my parents had already sent in the letter of intent to the, uh, to the student affairs office and I was waiting on her parents and I was just, I was scoping out the church office. I think I even flipped through all the mail to see if anything came and I think I, did, I was the one who found it and I ran it to Pastor Schultz's office and it's like, the letter's here, the letter's here and in my mind I'm thinking, oh yeah, he's gonna open up this letter and he'll open up the letter there and then I'll be able to walk down and I'll be able to talk to her, you know, and oh, this is gonna be great, this is gonna be amazing. And he opened it up, and this was like the beginning of November, something like that, maybe the end of October. And, um, oh, this would have been the very beginning of November. And, um, and he was reading it, and, you know, Danny Wickham and Shirley Wickham, you know, upon praying and all this stuff, we believe that uh, our daughter, Abigail Joy Wickham, uh, can begin courting Robert David James Bosler on Thanksgiving break. <laughs> oh, Thanksgiving break, that's like three weeks away! 
those were the roughest three weeks of my life. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, here's how it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. She's, you know, we're just going to be driving down to Indiana because we're going to go down Mrs. Hoffman, which, weirdly enough, is now my stepmother-in-law. At that point, she was just a family friend. Crazy stuff. She was our chaperone. She was going down to Indiana, too, and we were going to drive together. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to hardly be able to keep my eyes on the road, you know, and she's going to be staring at me, and it's just going to be, you know, oh, you know, all the crazy feelings inside of here. <clears throat> and I remember as we started driving down to Indiana when that day finally came, I remember, <clears throat> you know, I was all about it. And I think you guys need to recognize that, you know, you may be convinced and she needs to come to convincement too. And to be honest with you, God had given her life to start, but she wasn't yet totally, 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 totally convinced. She believed God wanted her to start the courtship, but she was still wrestling a little bit. And she looked across from me in the car and she said, just to be honest with you, I'm still wrestling about this. <laughs> And you know, I, I don't know how I got from Jonah to this, but <laughs> God taught us so much in that time. God taught me how to love unconditionally. God taught her what love really was. And honestly, we have the strongest marriage today, and I'm so thankful for that time because God was making me a man of God. God was making me someone who was secure in what God had told me. And even though in the moment I didn't really like what I was seeing, even though in the moment I didn't really like how things seemed to be falling apart all around me, God was for me. You know what would have been really easy for me to do? It would have been really easy for me to turn around and run and say, well, girl, if you're not convinced, I'll find somebody who is. That's not courtship, by the way. <laughs> Would have been real easy for me to cut and run and to run for my life. <laughs> but you know what that actually would have been doing? It would have been running from my life. And, um, you know, it could be children. Honestly, I thought of the marriage thing, didn't think so much about the children thing. And, you know, when you get married, children happen. It's just kind of what happens. And, um, you know, David came along, and I love David. I love all of my kids. But it was kind of an adjustment for me because I kind of, I don't know, I kind of a dumb little mis, uh, misconception here. I kind of just pictured my wife and I to be married for 20 years and children what? What? Huh? Children what? But children have a way of really messing things up. You know, babies come along, they've got diapers, they cry all through the night early on, and sometimes they keep doing that for a while, and then you get them to not cry, and then they start to teethe, and they cry again, and oh man, I'm telling you, and then they get older, and their issues become more complicated, and you know, then you get two children, and then you've got the interpersonal issues between the two children, then you've got a third child, and then the middle child changes because she's jealous of the younger child, and the, oh man, this is not how I pictured having a wife and a family. And you know what, there are a lot of dads out there that really do cut and run. 
They really do. They, they run for their lives. They become a deadbeat dad that just leaves mom and the kids to take care of themselves. Or if they stay faithful, they may be there, but they're absent. They're always out doing their thing, and they, they just never are there for the kids, and they're running for their lives. They're really running from the life that God intended for them. You see, <clears throat> Jonah, here at this time, he ran. He ran as far as he could. Tarshish was at the Straits of Gibraltar, at least if we understand it correctly. So he wasn't just staying put and ignoring God. He was running as far as he could from what God was trying to do. And I, I'm almost out of time here, but I, I've got something I want you to see here. Jonah, of course, you know, um, he ran, and uh, on the boat there, God sent the storm, and he, they, they tossed him out of the boat. You know all these things. He was eaten by the fish, and in the fish he had, um, he, he sort of got right with God. <clears throat> At least he said, all right, fine. Fine, I'll do it. Seems a little bit more devotional than that in the poetry of chapter 2. But he ended up cooperating. He ended up going along with what God told him to do. But chapter 4 makes it very clear that even though Jonah went along with it, he didn't embrace what God was doing. He didn't embrace the bigger picture. He didn't embrace God's heart. And, and you know, <clears throat> I found in my life when God throws curveballs, it's real easy sometimes just to grit your teeth and push through and to say, well, I really don't like it this way. And I'll tell you what happened for Jonah will happen for you. Jonah ended up here at the end of the book of Jonah, a bitter, hollow, angry man. And if you just grit your teeth and just go with the curveballs that God throws into your life, if you just kind of decide, well, whatever, I'm not a quitter, I don't give up, I don't like it, but whatever, who cares? You're going to end up yourself to be a bitter, hollow, angry shell of a man or woman. See, what Jonah needed to do is Jonah needed to, when the word of the Lord came unto him, and when that word of the Lord and what God was calling, to do, calling him to do was messing up how he pictured things going, Jonah needed to get before God. And Jonah needed to say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm willing to make any sacrifice for you. God, I may not understand. I may, you may well be trying to rescue the Ninevites there. And listen, you're the creator. That's your prerogative to do. And sure, that might mess up my situation here in the northern kingdom. But you know what, God? Your plan is better than mine. God, I'm not going to run from what you're doing here. In fact, I'm not just going to knuckle under and just do what you want. I want your heart on it. You know, I'll be honest with you, here this semester, God's been working in my heart about a whole lot of different things. Um, you know, I mentioned my kids. I, I wasn't really thinking about kids when I got married, and my kids came along. And, um, you know, like I said, kids have their own unique challenges. <coughs> And um, when Dr. Jim was preaching earlier in the New Life meetings, I recognized that a, uh, a pattern of thinking, a wrong pattern of thinking that I had in my heart was that, was that my kids 
for getting in the way of my ministry. I know that probably sounds cold and heartless and terrible, and honestly, it is terrible. But that was a pattern of thinking because I, I really asked myself the question, how come when, you know, and this is just a parent thing, you know, on Sunday morning as we're all trying to get ready to go to church and the kids aren't quite having it together and, or I'm about ready to go out and preach for Sunday night and, you know, at this church and, and the kids are, did something crazy or they went to the bathroom all over the bed or, you know, whatever kids do. Why do I get so angry? Well, it's because there was a stronghold, a pattern of thinking that my kids were in the way. They were in the way of my ministry. And God brought me to the point where I realized, you know what? My kids are a blessing, and they are a part. They are an intricate, integral part, a core part of the amazing, wonderful plan of God that he has for me. A change to my thinking, and I'll be honest with you, I've not been perfect. This is something I'm still growing in but just changing my mind, embracing God's heart. My kids are here because God wants to use them in my life and God wants to use them to do great things. But I'm telling you, when things go wrong in your life and it's not how you pictured it, you can get angry at the circumstance. You can get angry at the curveball. And mark my words, if you don't get God's heart in it, you'll either run or you'll knuckle under and become a bitter angry, hollow shell of a Christian. You know, I think the moral of the story here, here was a prophet, that God strong-armed into doing His will, but never quite got a hold of God's heart. And it's a very tragic story. We rejoice that God used this man that wasn't all the way in to see the whole city of Nineveh saved. We rejoice at that but he still didn't have God's heart. You know what? God can use you and do some pretty amazing things through you, but that doesn't change the fact that if you don't get God's heart when the curveballs come, it'll destroy you. Can I have every head bowed and every eye closed here this morning?